Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week, we'll be looking at some clips from my interview with Quillette contributor Lawrence Krauss, who recently had me as a guest on his The Origins podcast. In that forthcoming episode, Lawrence asked me about a million things. We actually spoke for more than three hours, but the main subject, which ended up occupying the last half hour of our conversation, was the big investigative piece I wrote last month for Quillette under the title McMaster's Imaginary Sex Ring, and a follow-up article, which apparently Lawrence liked more, called Lessons from an Academic Social Panic. In those articles, I wrote about the series of false allegations made in 2020 against members of the psychology department at McMaster University in Hamilton, which is a city just west of Toronto here in Canada. To summarize, two women made bombshell claims that academics in the psych department were running a Jeffrey Epstein-style sex ring. The whole story turned out to be based on extremely dubious so-called recovered memories, and there were plenty of warning signs that the story made no sense. But the university still dragged the reputations of numerous scholars through the mud while wasting millions of dollars in the process on lawyers and investigators, all the while claiming that they had to give credence to the far-fetched accusations because they were following a quote-unquote trauma-informed process. You can learn more by reading these articles or by listening to Lawrence Krauss ask me about them in the interview that follows. To hear the whole interview, just head over to Lawrence Krauss's podcast, at youtube.com, The Origins Podcast. The last thing I want to I wanna cover was your, uh, I think, a masterpiece of investigative reporting about this McMaster this imaginary sex ring. You know, one of the earliest, uh, uh, you may not know her, Elizabeth Loftus. Loftus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and, and Elizabeth Loftus. is a hero of mine is, and, and always has been, and she was one of our earliest podcasters. And Elizabeth Loftus plays, I'm not sure if I... Uh, name checked her in my article but she indirectly played an important role which we can discuss in the mcmaster story well that'd be great because uh, yeah let's talk about that because it reminded me of that of this of 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 therapists giving these imagined memories and this whole there were people who were tried and the people who lost their whole here's their kids and and it was all imagined yeah yeah yeah, it was just an i know i know from personal anecdotal knowledge a family that was broken up by an unsubstantiated, quote-unquote, recovered memory of sexual abuse that was weaponized. And um, two completely innocent parents became estranged from a child. Yeah. And it destroyed the whole family. Your, your story here reminded me of that a lot. And so why don't you give us a brief, Tracy, of, so, of what um, the story's about. As you said, it's a 13,000-word story. Though I did subsequently on Quillette publish a 2,000-word piece that summarized the story yeah in fact it's a it's a nice summary i was i looked at that and maybe not everybody's gonna read thirteen thousand words but if you google mcmaster and quillette you'll find both stories mcmaster university is a prestigious uh, research university in hamilton ontario which is about an hour and change west of toronto and the psychology department is quite well known there it's technically referred to as pnb which is psychology, neuroscience, and behavior. 
it was rocked by scandal in 2020 when it was alleged that a professor there, uh, his name was Scott Water, was sexually abusing graduate students, female graduate students. And then subsequently, it was alleged that there was a whole sex ring, a whole Jeffrey Epstein style sex ring involving women. The allegation was that this included his wife and included even more oddly, the long-term girlfriend of the main complainant. So there was the allegation was that there's a whole conspiracy of people, both the main complainant and the main complainant's girlfriend were grad students in the psychology department. So all of the main players here are either grad students or professors. And then there were these these other, as it turned out, completely innocent professors who were dragged in. Posters were put up in certain parts of the campus, like if you see this professor, if you see this woman, you know, call security, the suggestion being that these were dangerous sex criminals, everyone was suspended. These ominous warnings were sent out to the whole university community. You know, we have received unsettling reports of blah, blah, blah. It turned out all of the sex ring stuff was just absolutely complete fabricated nonsense. It's absolutely true that one of the professors, Scott Water, was having a consensual, I don't even want to call it an affair because it it's not even clear they had sex, but there was a sexual component to their relationship. Mm-hmm. It was, I should say, a very unwholesome type of thing. And he was subsequently disciplined by the university, but not on the basis that it was any kind of sex ring, but on the basis that he had used his authority as a professor to purport to give mental health advice to this grad student who herself was in the throes of depression and had a lot of other issues. She was cutting herself. The whole thing was very unseemly, but it had nothing to do with any kind of sex ring. All of that was a social panic. But it was a social panic that destroyed the reputations of about a half dozen scholars. They were thrown off campus. Their offices were ransacked. They were completely shamed in front of their their peers. And the department itself fell into chaos because all of the scholars represented a substantial fraction of the PNB department. And so there were just dozens of people whose their, their thesis work had to be reassigned. I should say there was a second main accuser who impressed me greatly because the second accuser basically supported a lot of the things that the first accuser, who turned out to be a fabulist, had said. But the second accuser later admitted that she had been in the throes of a psychiatric episode and that she was in crisis and very suggestible. She had just watched Netflix's documentary on Jeffrey Epstein and imagined that a lot of this had happened at McMaster. But as awful as that sounds, to her great credit, she stepped forward, not publicly, but stepped forward to those who were investigating it and said, I'm, I'm really sorry and I'm ashamed, but this, this didn't happen. Uh, which is, we're talking about admitting you're wrong. I mean, yeah. imagine... The, the stakes in admitting that. I mean, that's yeah. just a huge thing. I was, I was very impressed. Um, but it also says something that university officials didn't detect the fact that this was a person in crisis and, and used her testimony and say, oh, look, we have a second source on this. And, and it was on that basis. In fact, just days after this woman formalized her complaint to the university that many of these people were suspended. One thing that I say in the article is that it had a sort of unusual ending because a lot of the time you hear about these social panics and there's no consequences. Mm -hmm. What was interesting about this 
is that the PNB department at McMaster fought back and not just the people who had been shamed and, and wrongly accused. In fact, they were under instruction, as is often the case, that they couldn't say anything. Yeah. It's sort of like the Title IX investigations yeah. in the United States. They weren't allowed to say anything. They weren't even allowed to contact their colleagues. They weren't yeah. allowed to continue their academic research. Yeah. Uh, in one case, a woman, the wife of Scott Water, who completely innocent woman, uh, her name dragged through the mud for a year, she was told by the university administration she couldn't complete an academic project with her dying father, who was also a psychologist. Yeah. On the other side of the world, he lives in Australia, and he, he ended up passing away. The whole thing was, was absolutely nuts. However, because it was so nuts, the PNB department as a whole fought back. And in part, this was because a man who was at the time the chair of the department is an expert on, among other things, memory. And I got a whole trove of documents, internal correspondence involving all of this, which just made the documents made my jaw drop. In some of his correspondence, the chair in warning the university in mid 2020, you are embarking on something really dangerous and misguided here, appended four attachments, which consisted of peer reviewed academic studies of recovered memory syndrome, including if I I think they were articles by Elizabeth Loftus. Mm -hmm. And he said, it was a two-page letter, if I remember, in, in, in not so many words, you should learn from history here. Because both of the main complainants were offering what were claimed to be recovered memories. Because the primary complainant had come forward in early 2020 and said, oh, I was sexually abused by, by Scott Water. And then months later, came back and said, oh, I have all these recovered memories. It turns out there was a whole sex ring involved. I think a layperson could ask themselves whether it's plausible that those recovered memories would assert themselves in that way. I said in the article, you know, if this had been the geology department or the botany department, I don't know if McMaster has a botany yeah. department. I don't know if anyone has a botany yeah. department. Yeah. Seems like an antique word, <laughs> but, or the mathematics department. I think the, the university administration would not have been called out for their complete oh. mismanagement of this. But right. because it was psychologists, because it was people who study human behavior and the fallibility of memory, they came forward and, and I have, you know, recordings of them confronting university officials this is over Zoom because a lot of this played out in the first months of the, uh, the pandemic, basically saying, you know, how are you presuming to lecture us about things like sexual trauma, things like, you know, when people are being honest and when they're they're lying about memories, about witness recollections, like a lot of these people studied have studied these things for decades. And the university president, who's a chemist by the name of David Farrar, uh, inorganic chemist, I think he deals with metallic compounds or something like that. You know, he started spouting all this mumbo jumbo about like trauma informed discourse that had clearly been provided for him as a sort of a set of lines to be read out by his um, DEI people, his... Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was, was mortifying, but it, it wouldn't have ended up on my desk and it wouldn't have ended up in my article had it not been for the fact that these were world-class scholars in the field of psychology and also the fact that there were women involved. You know, it's one thing to say, this guy, Scott Water, mm -hmm. did all this stuff. We have seen examples of this. 10 years ago, came and said, oh, there's this guy named Harvey Weinstein. You know, mm -hmm. he, he did all this horrible stuff and no one's been talking about it for 20 years. But it was true. And, and I acknowledge that in the article. So there's all sorts of examples of stuff like this hushed up. Even as I was publishing the article, there was an example out of the, the UK press 
of, of an esteemed columnist who it turns out for years has been sexually harassing people. In, but that was one guy. In the case of McMaster, it was alleged there was an entire sex ring that included at least two female members, sort of the equivalent of Gislin Maxwell types based on the you know Jeffrey Epstein precedent. Yeah. And I think people were like, wait a sec, this is kind of like Hollywood movie stuff. And it made people skeptical. I mean, this is a fascinating story, but I didn't bring it up because it's salacious, although it is. And it's, and it's, you know, people are always interested in salacious news, and this is a clear example. What I wanted to do actually was based on your second art article, which I think is more, I mean, I think what's more important is what do we learn from this? Because the first one was the reporting. My 13,000 words of the reporting. But then, as you say, the second article was based on, like, what are the policy results? Yeah, I mean, all, my reason for bringing up all of these things is ultimately to lead us to the question of how can we... Yeah. What can we do as journalists, as scientists, as members of the public to try and ensure that these ideological abuses or dogmatic abuses are dealt with correctly? And so, yeah, in your second piece, uh, The Lessons, which is entitled, I think, The Lessons from an Academic Social Panic, I found particularly worth talking about. One of the conclusions that I came to was that there has to be some way for university officials and I realize this, the standards differ from university to university, but there has to be some way for university officials to dismiss complaints on a summary basis that doesn't rely on a one-year process involving an external investigator. Because at the center of this controversy was the fact that you had women who came forward to something called the SVPRO, which is Sexual Violence Prevention and Response Office, which essentially was was run by one person at this time. Mm -hmm. And this one person was in charge of educating members of the university community about sexual abuse. If you thought you'd been sexually abused at the university, you came forward to this person. This person would then coach you in how to do a proper complaint. It's person, not unusual. It's the norm. I'm by the way. This person was then the intake official for the complaint. This person would then decide if your complaint met intake requirements. And then this person would also serve on a mandatory basis based on university protocols, which were then in place on something called the response team, which would judge, for instance, so-called interim measures, including interim suspensions. So you had one person who naturally, not to cast aspersions on this, who this one person was, this person became highly vested in the narratives of the yeah. people she was helping. And, you know, to be fair, People do get sexually abused. And, yeah. you know, McMaster University's tens of thousands of members of the university community, it would be unusual if, you, if a community that large didn't have legitimate instances of sexual abuse. When people come forward, they deserve to be treated with respect. And it is not unpredictable that this person would become vested in what she regards as the truth of these complaints that come forward and then respond accordingly when she's wearing a different hat and she has to judge interim measures or impose and stuff like this. I, I talk about how there absolutely has to be checks and balances in, in the same way. Obviously we're not dealing with protocols of, of real criminal justice and all the constitutional safeguards that attach there too. But even in the administrative campus setting, you can't just have one person be judge and jury like it just it absolutely makes no sense the other thing is as i wrote there has to be some way to dismiss complaints that are just untethered from reality one thing that emerged from my research is that the reason that even when it was clear that these sex ring accusations made no sense 
the university didn't seem to have any formal protocols oh. that allowed its officials to say, this is crazy. Yeah, He's dismissed. No... Once it's, yeah. Once you reach the nominal theoretical intake requirements for a sexual violence complaint, you have to call in an external investigator with, you know, that could take a yeah. year. And meanwhile, you're thrown off campus. And I put the question to the to university officials. They, they answered some of my questions, as I detailed in the articles, but not all of them. I said, you know, this was a case where you had five or six academics who were accused of being in a sex ring. I put the question to the university. What if instead of five people, what if 50 people had been accused? What if the university president had been accused? What if the woman running the SVPRO herself had been accused of sexual abuse? Would she have been suspended? Would the university president have been suspended? Would the board of governors have been suspended? Like, because that kind of would have made as much sense as a lot of the elements in the science fiction Epstein-like narrative that we're seeing. They wouldn't answer those questions. Um, They just kept repeating mantras about how, you know, we're trauma-informed. And again, there's a grain of truth to all this. Is it true that people sometimes garble their recollections of actual events based on suffering trauma? Of course it's true. You know, there's famous, famous examples of Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Who, who say wrong things. They say, oh, you know, there was a factory that made soap out of our bones and stuff like this. This is a famous case. This is mm. 30, 40 years ago. I think it was on Donahue, of all things. And, and and no one is saying, well, this survivor got the fact wrong, so therefore the Holocaust didn't happen. Yeah. You'd have, you know, only anti-Semitic lunatics are saying things like that. However, to extrapolate from that and say, well, you know, we want to be trauma-informed, so we're going to strip ourselves of the ability to dismiss on a summary basis even the most far-fetched claims means you're going to get a lot of false positives and at some point you have to you have to be able to do that or you're just going to ruin lives as long as these other offices do not report to ultimately an academic administration but run independently then the academic administration will feel like they have well they'll be terrified of responding and saying this case should be just dismissed and and so there it's this independent infrastructure that's occurring obviously in McMaster but I've seen it happen in many other institutions to be fair because I realize that the organizational architecture is different at all universities and at some universities DEI department operates as a kind of power unto itself however at McMaster the architecture has changed somewhat but the SVPRO, which was then part of uh, something called the EIO, answered to the provost, uh, VP Academic, mm. who then is now is a woman named Susan Tai, T-I-G-H-E. Yeah. The other thing that I say is that to some extent, this is a case of university administrators being over-resourced because at every important decision point where leadership was required, and you had Susan Tai, provost, David Farrar as university president. They didn't want to make a decision, so they just they hired a law. I think that I cataloged there's like three or four different law firms that were brought in to investigate or you know to facilitate a listening session or you know to advise on best practices. They brought in a communications firm when they screwed up the original messaging and essentially leaked the names of all the people they had suspended, despite the fact that they. They didn't actually say their names, but instead they just leaked all this information that allowed everybody, including student journalists, to figure out who had been suspended. Millions of dollars have been paid out to various third parties. They had a guy from Baker McKenzie, sort of gold-plated Bay Street, multinational law firm who, who, was, who was on speed dial whenever they needed. Uh, his name was George Avram. 
millions and millions of dollars in legal costs. And whenever they were presented with any kind of opportunity to nip this thing in the bud, it was just like, let's kick the ball down the field for another six months or 12 months and have another investigation and bring in a but, consultant. But you can understand, I mean, I think the point is, we need to understand that that's a natural response. Why would sure. you want to nip, if, if you nip in the bud, suddenly you're seen on social media as protecting potential. Oh, it's absolutely. so much easier yeah. to pass the buck or to just even more aggressively get in front and say, we're going to devote all the resources of this institution to make sure that, because it, yeah. it plays well to the public, it plays well to the media, it plays well social media. When the university did, essentially, they didn't say as much, but effectively these these suspended academics, all but one of them, all but Scott Water himself, who, as mm. I said, was, was censured, all of them were exonerated, effectively exonerated and, and, and brought back to work. When the university, th through gritted teeth, I should say, announced as much and actually gave what I think was a deceptive a school wide yeah. announcement, they couldn't bring themselves to, to say to they admit. were wrong. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pathetic. And, and, and one of the main bo bones of contention that remains they were at least able to say, hey, this wasn't our decision. This was this independent investigator named Catherine Montpetit, although I don't think they used her name. And they were able to strip themselves of any moral agency. And this is part of a theme. If you look on the McMaster website, they make this big song and dance of like our leadership team, our leaders who provide leadership. They can't shut up about how they're these great grandees who preside over the campus with their wonderful leadership. But then when you actually look at a case study like this, the absolute last thing any single one of them wants to do is, is attach their name to exactly the kind of decision that any real leader would do and say, entire department is being destroyed by these accusations about a sex ring that everyone here knows is crazy, but no one in this room will say so. And so we're going to let a half dozen people have their reputations get trashed and we're going to spend $10 million dollars and let a, an entire department suffer for reasons that we know are, are BS. I'm a leader. This ends now. That's, That's what leadership uh, looks like. One of the things I, I guess I want to hit to with you as a, as a journalist, I don't want to put all of the blame on journalists, but in some sense, yeah. the question is how can we assist, how can journalism, how can media assist leaders and other people to have integrity and backbone instead of jumping on every salacious story and then never writing up a story about it when it's wrong later on. To some extent, the problem in journalism might be getting worse. In Canada, at least, and maybe this is the case in the United States, there is a strong symbiotic relationship between university administrators and especially local media. McMaster is a world-class university. As a world-class university, you know, they might recruit famous scientists or whatnot. And if you're covering the academic beat for like the Hamilton Spectator newspaper yeah. or, you know, the St. Catherine's Standard or, you know, this or the Toronto Star, a lot of your bread and butter stories are going to be like interviews or profiles on on famous academics yeah. or like, you know, discoveries that are made in the universities or, you know, there's some scandal that takes place at the university and you want the comms official to return mm. your call and the local newspaper is the Hamilton Spectator. And the Hamilton Spectator covered this a ton when it was still thought that all these allegations were real. So at mm -hmm. one point, I detailed, there was a reporter there. She's no longer there anymore. She did a, a 5,400-word story detailing in every salacious, credulous, molecular level 
detail of the accusation. But then Scott Water uh, was cleared of criminal wrongdoing in 2022 in open court. On top of that, university investigator had determined that none of the sex ring stuff was true. And guess what? <laughs> the Hamilton Spectator lost interest in the story real quick. Because there's a lot of, yeah, it's a, you know. But this isn't a conspiracy, but imagine if you write this tell-all about the horrors allegedly inflicted on this poor woman by this Jeffrey Epstein-like sex criminal, you can win awards in Canadian journalism. Yeah, yeah. and you don't get awards for saying this is wrong. I'm an Australian, so I'm based in Toronto, but what does it tell you that this is three years after the McMaster, you know, this imaginary sex scandal uh, unfolded at McMaster University? That the outlet that ended up finally writing about because the people involved in this mm. were shopping the story around yeah, to Canadian yeah, outlets. Well, I, yeah. I have to imagine. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, yeah. but it's it'd be shocking that they weren't trying to interest. Because I had I had so many sources on this story. It's yeah. just clear that people mm-hmm. at McMaster were, were waiting for three years for someone to write the definitive story on this. The fact that they had to come to an Australian outlet, albeit you know a, I'm a Canadian journalist. Think about that, that they couldn't get anyone at the Toronto Star interested. They couldn't yeah. get anyone at the Hamilton Spectator interested. They couldn't get anyone interested, local radio, CBC, my God, like this, the CBC would treat the story as radioactive. It's yeah, the yeah. opposite of, of believe, believe the victim. That's this. I, this is not something I got into because I don't want, you know, I didn't want the focus of the story to be. But it's, it's what I want to get into. It's the problem. It's a real issue. There's obviously no easy solution, but I want to raise it. Because I think the only way to, to change these things is get the public more aware of the situation. It's really important for all of us, journalists, academics, everyone, to, be, to question ourselves, be willing to say we're wrong, and uh, base our decisions on evidence and be willing to change our mind when the evidence shows us we're wrong. And wouldn't it be a great world if we had that way? And let's hope we can be in a better world. And it's a better world for you having agreed to talk to me on this subject and i really appreciate it well my my theory was that it would be time well spent and uh this this n equals one experiment has confirmed that i was correct (laughs) thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the quillette podcast quillette is where free thought lives we are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 